Carlos Alberto Diego with me here on 1116 SEN to talk of the world game. Football. How are you, mate? How are you going? I'm good. Got up early this morning. I'm glad you Trying to wake to up. Yeah. <laughs> sitting on the couch with a coffee. Yeah. And there's two goals in the back of the net by Juventus before I even really realised what was going on. Yeah, look, on. I, I love what my world happens? football, but if you're going to miss, because you're sleep deprived and you're trying to get your sleeping patterns right and you're going to miss something, miss the first leg of these games. The second leg is where it all counts, as Barcelona showed against PSG uh, the last round where they came back from nowhere to, to win that one. And uh, they're going to have to repeat that this time too because they obviously lost 3-0 against Juventus uh, away from home. They've got uh, New Camp now to try and resurrect something. Yeah, but they've, uh, as we know, they're quite capable of it, but they look, they, they look terrible at the not, not against Sergio Vasquez not there. And, yeah, oh, yeah, like yeah. But that's not going to be their problem going back to Spain. No. Their problem is they've got to play an Italian side who love this. They were born to this. Actually, the Italian the team... Catanaccio. Yeah, that's right. Here the, it comes. The Italian teams, <laughs> everyone comes out as a baby as a centre-half, right? They're all born centre-halves, and then they... To, you know, then they sort of manoeuvre them into other positions as they grow up. But you're born a centre half and a dirty centre half too when you're Italian. And uh, and by the way, having said that, Cellini scored a great goal today. He did, and he didn't get into a fight with Suarez either. Not yet. Paolo <laughs> Dybala uh, that was the star, the young Argentinian who uh, scored twice. The first goal, the way he swivels on onto yeah. his left shoe and beats De Stegen at the back post was superb. Yeah, and the and the Italians love their their South Americans that come and play in their league. And he's another a 23 year old Argentinian. Who actually spent a bit of time in Italy with Palermo before Juventus, and he's been there at the club, and uh, and they're really excited. I think part of the reason why they paid so much for Higuain was the fact that they wanted to pair him and Dybala in the same team. Uh, and uh, and look again, Juventus are on top, leading the way in City R, and they're going well in the Champions League. They're the sort of team right now. If you're not on your game, Juventus will always play well. So. Whoever's got to play them, if they get past this this uh, this leg into the semi-finals, and uh, and whoever they're playing, if if you're not playing your best football, you're all going to struggle against Juventus because they always they're pretty consistent and they're really hard to beat. Yeah, battle hardened and very very good. At uh, 24 past two, but uh, closer to home. Interesting article in today's Herald Sun by our good friend and colleague Dave Dubrovic about. Uh, the Professional Footballers Association in this country proposing a model for a second division of clubs here, professional clubs here, that wouldn't necessarily incorporate at this stage promotion and relegation, but would give professional football to a whole generation of players. John Didlitzer is in charge of the PFA here in Australia, and he joins us here on 1116 SEN this afternoon to discuss. G'day, JD. How are you going? Yeah, good afternoon, guys. How would this work? What's the model that you're proposing that, that you feel could actually be sustained here as a, as a second division across the country? Yeah, look, I think the, the starting point for any discussion is a recognition that we need to broaden and grow our professional footprint. Um, if, we're, if we're hoping to be internationally competitive at junior age football, at women's football, um, and ultimately at the World Cup, we need more than nine professional um, entities in Australia. So we need to start that journey. So how do we grow that nine to 12, 14, 16, 20? And you know, the reality is, it's you know having lived this firsthand through the Melbourne Heart experience, it's extremely challenging to start a club from nothing and make it competitive, both on and off the field, in the space of six to twelve months. So, I think something like a, a second tier or, or a secondary national competition uh, gives the opportunity to players, um, aspiring coaches, aspiring administrators, to get involved in a professional. Uh, set up so you, you've got a, a player pathway if you like um, but equally it builds a club pathway so for clubs who might have aspirations of 
becoming fully professional, there's an op- there's a stepping stone in place before you need to take this huge quantum leap into yeah, an A-league competition, which is international and in its outlook. Um, so I think it's it's about starting that conversation and, and really setting the bar where it needs to be set from the outset, rather than just reheating yeah, what's what's come before or what we have now. Johnny, it's Carlos. Uh, that that's that's the point I want to get to. You know, the starting of the conversation. Now, uh, I'm a great believer that in Australian football over the decades, uh, whatever's come in that's new has been long overdue. We're always long overdue bringing things in. We're starting the conversation now. There's a lot of people who are agitating out there for expansion, obviously, and that's been that's going to be delayed. That's been explained to us by the FFA. But now the second division. You know, are the FFA listening? You guys have been very proactive. The PFA has been very proactive in the last couple of months, putting out different uh, visions for the game, the, the women's vision, the uh, grassroots, the greatest vision. Uh, but are the FFA uh, listening to you guys? And if they are, what sort of timeline do you think we're looking at? Oh, look, for me, it's, it's, it's the timeline is almost secondary. Um, I think what we need to do is actually... Um, start gauging interest um, more broadly around whether there are organisations out there, whether they're existing or, or new consortia, who see this as an opportunity. So can they actually build uh, or, or aspire to have a professional footballing model uh, within their organisation? Then we can start actually working with those groups and start building timelines in behind that. There's no use in imposing an arbitrary start date and saying we need to be up and running by this date because we need to we need to ensure that any activations are well considered um, in terms of of FFA yeah, absolutely this needs to be a, a coalition who drives um, this sort of a project it's a, a huge undertaking it's beyond the scope of any one stakeholder to bring this to life so now by starting this conversation our hope is to work with FFA to work with the existing A-League clubs uh, to work with um, NPL clubs uh, to, and, and start actually uh, building some uh, some structure so that if there are people genuinely interested in investing in the sport, we can create a forum for that. But it's not a promotion relegation model that you, you're suggesting with this and no. the big de- trouble uh, will be trying to determine which clubs or which entities come in and how they're constituted, wouldn't it? Like it it's, it's, not a, it's hard enough as it is with the different state federations in Australian soccer to get them to agree. So then to have a national competition built off, off that framework isn't going to be easy. Yeah, it's a, ch- it's a challenging task. It's, you know, you know to, to quote a, a bit of management speak, it's a multi-stakeholder type undertaking. Um, you know, the A-League has to remain our priority and building, more importantly, building value in the A-League is imperative and you can't build value in any club if you know within a season they actually get relegated and their income from one year to the next uh, fluctuates so Can much. I just ask you, John, just on that, I mean, the 10-team A-League structure seems to have wearied. I mean, there's got to be some change there, doesn't it? Because the constant rotation of three games per season, each club plays each other, the familiarity of it, the fatigue that's sort of set in around that competition, that that's a concern. Well, I th- look, I certainly think that um, promotion is something we should absolutely look at. Um, I, I like the first part. I like the notion of promotion. I like the notion of building clubs, then promoting them into the A-League. What I don't think works for now is relegating teams from the A-League. 
um, on any basis. So, you know, the observations around, you know, the A-League, you know, sometimes they're, you know, everybody's entitled to their view on and the way they're perceiving the way the A-League's running. You know, personally, I look at it and I admire what Sydney's achieved and I, I think they've had a, a wonderful season, you know, but there's still a lot of work to do on that journey. Um, but with the, what the second tier does, it actually, I think it does build momentum within the sport. I think it builds momentum economically, it builds momentum publicly, and will be a really strong um, pathway for people who are genuinely interested in becoming professional enterprises. Now, Johnny, this uh, this idea, this concept that you're coming up with, or your sort of blueprint for this, uh, how much does that come from your personal experience? Because obviously you were there from the first days of uh, Melbourne Heart, and, uh, and you know, it wasn't easy for you guys to come into a market that was all, almost owned by Melbourne Victory, and you sort of forged your way, and now it's become Melbourne City. Uh, what What sort of... You know, what sort of experiences are you bringing in that were personal uh, that you've experienced yourself in, in the Melbourne Heart days that are sort of uh, involved with this package that you're putting together? Yeah, look, it certainly shaped my thinking um, around the need to evolve clubs over time and give them an opportunity to find their feet and, you know, build what I call sort of that tangible and intangible infrastructure. You know, build your roots into the community, uh, build your capital, you know, build your, your training base. There's so many... Now, competing at the top level professionally is such a huge undertaking. If you then have to actually build a club simultaneously to that, it's a huge challenge. Um, so, yeah, actually developing a, a, a feeder division, if you like, will give a lot of people an opportunity to build their club first and ensure sustainability long term. Can I just ask, John, just um, yep. quickly, because we've got to move on, what sort of budget would you be looking at for one of these second-tier, div- second second-division clubs? What sort of turnover would yeah, they require, do you reckon? I, I think our analysis is at around a median amount of sort of $5.5 million, um, with league expenses around 10 or $12 million centralised. Um, and again, it'll vary slightly depending on the level of infrastructure a club's got, whether they need to start from scratch, there'll be different investments required. But you know, the point of this is to create high-quality opportunities for future players, coaches, administrators, and ensure that Australia can be internationally competitive at all the key levels. Now, reheating a million-dollar business or a two-million-dollar business won't achieve that. We need to actually set the bar high enough so that people coming through that system know what it means to be high-quality elite professionals who compete on an international level. And I think the the entry-level price for me, having worked through the numbers, is around five, five and a half million. Good to talk to you. It's a fascinating debate, and there's plenty of people within the game who believe it needs to happen. Thanks for talking to us today. Yeah, thanks for your time, guys. John Didelitzer, who's the C, uh, Chief Executive of the Professional Footballers Association, which is like the AFL Players Association equivalent in the world game. And he's a guy that, with his experience as a former player, um, a brother of a, of a, of a player who's gone, uh, played overseas and understands that uh, pathway, uh, worked for the FFA as a lawyer, uh, was involved with Melbourne Heart. I mean, this guy has all the ingredients to know and almost be an advisor and a consultant to anyone who wants to put a bid in for a professional club in this country, whether it's second division or A-League. Do you like the model that John and the PFA are proposing? Yeah, no, I like the idea of having a second division with no promotion relegation for a while. And I like the idea of if anyone's got aspirations playing the A-League, we'll go and spend five or six years in this league first. Show us what you've got. Show us what you can build. If you're talking about... It's it's so easy to put a proposal out there these days. You spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on a proposal and you can make something look fantastic. Qatar won a World Cup on the back of... those sort of proposals. Uh, proposals mean nothing to me anymore. Show us 
show us what you've got, and in the second division, you'll be able to get a chance to do that. Mm, whatever did happen to those detachable <laughs> air-conditioned stadiums that were going to be shipped off around the well, world? Weren't they going to air-condition the whole country? They were. Yes, magnificent. <laughs> Carlos is here. We're talking the world game, uh, and uh, we're talking about Ange Postacoglu. Quietly last week, just made it known that uh, when this particular World Cup qualifying campaign come what may is over with the Socceroos, that's it. Yeah. Didn't really shake many headlines, did it? But it was big news. Yeah, well, it doesn't surprise me really with Ange because he he tends to try and go out on a high wherever he's gone because in the past when he didn't do it and he was sacked on a low, he was almost unemployable. He'll admit that himself. I'm talking all those years ago when he was dismissed from the young Socceroo job and the Joey's, Joey's job. Yeah, yeah so he found, him, he, found, he found it really def- difficult to get back into the into the workforce, the football workforce after that. So I think he's learnt that he, he goes out on the high. He did that with Brisbane. He did that with Melbourne Victory to go to Socceroos. Uh, if they make the World Cup and they, they do quite okay there, you make your name on a, on a world scale. And so suddenly there might be some jobs opening up. And, and we talk about, in Europe, that's what he's looking for. Uh, we talk about someone like Graham Arnold being talked about in the Dutch area, the Vizzy, for example, where he was a great yeah, player, absolutely. So with Rodo and uh, and so there's no reason why Ange these days he goes overseas a lot and meets a lot of people. Sometimes the networking side of it's really important. So I think he's done a lot of that. So um, you know there might be a club in maybe in the secondary type leagues in Europe who might take a pun on someone like Ange. Well, I mean, what our great dream is often to have our best players playing in the Premier League or one of the major leagues. Wouldn't it be amazing to see an Australian coach there? Yeah, no, I, I probably it would be amazing and because we we know Ange and he's come from our generation that I'd be really, you know, proud of the fact that we've got someone, but I get more excited about a player playing at that level because we can use him in the, in the Socceroos to get us to a World Cup and, and win <laughs> games. But if Ange, you know, unless Ange comes back a better coach and coaches the Socceroos, I wish him well, but I won't think too much about him. So, I mean, it's a big mu- a couple of months coming up with the Confederations Cup. It's going to be the litmus test, isn't it? And a couple of World Cup qualifiers in between. But there'll already be discussions around, well, who would be in line to replace mm. him at the back end of this? And the obvious ones are Tony Popovich. Uh, you know, do you get Kevin Musket of the, of the new brood of coaches coming through? Do you recycle someone like Graham Arnold, who's been so good at uh, Sydney FC, but had such a bad time of it? with them in earlier years. Last year was a horrible year for them, and before that... he and was, has been in charge of the national team before. He has, and it did, didn't necessarily go well. He, he has got a lot of experience, though, working under the likes of Gus Hiddink and Pim Verbeek and, and uh, Holger Osiek. I think he was part of that sort of uh, set up also. So do you go back with someone like a Graham Arnold? I, look, I reckon you've you got you got to throw someone like a Popovich or Musket the chance. And I, at this point, because of Popovich's... Um, I don't know, uh, his success, I suppose, in the Asian Champions League. And, uh, and I th- you know, I read the other day, he's, he's got uh, West City Wanderers in their the five-year history uh, into grand finals on three occasions in that five years. I mean, you just can't ignore that sort of stuff. And I think he'd, even though he's denying it or he's sort of ignoring the talk at the moment, uh, someone like him might, uh, I think, would probably be the, the next obvious one. Well, Kevin's also made it quite clear mm. that that's his ambition, that, yeah. he, that he wants. I've asked him in interviews, what's what's his next step? And he's quite clearly said to me that his ambition is to coach the national team. But I reckon if you ask John Eloise, he'd say the same thing. These guys are, are winners. These guys are guys who uh, always want to test themselves at the highest, highest level. I mean, Paul O'Connor would be saying that too. And, and that's what you get from that golden generation uh, of players. Uh, they're not just happy doing the best they can in their football footballing career, but also as coaches too. Whatever they do in the game, they want to be the best. 9-4-2-9-11-16, what, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the next national coach? 
Uh, here's a text coming through on zero four double three ninety eight eleven sixteen. Hashtag finger out <laughs> and Jim. Well, he's been over there. I mean, no doubt he's told you, uh, Francis. He spent a bit of time he did. in the. In the Arsenal uh, camp and uh, spending a few weeks there watching him train and, and just learning from him. And I believe from that sort of time when he was unemployable to when he ended up getting the Brisbane job, he went over there and that's when he really refined his philosophy watching Arsene Wenger in the way Arsenal go about it. No, I wouldn't be watching too closely at the moment yeah. after that 3 0 hiding at uh, Selhurst Park against and Crystal it, Palace. I watched that, uh, and if you want to Google this, uh, you know, the, the, the phone footage of the crowd in that one corner, basically... Uh, Have you ever seen before, Carlos? Yeah. I'll paint the picture. So the ball goes out uh, forward on the right-hand side for Arsenal. The away fans are there, and Hector Bellerin goes yeah. over to take the throw-in, and the away fans, his fans, yep. refuse to give him the ball. Yeah, but and are chanting at him, you're not fit to win. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was... Was it just him? Man, or, it's I, a low I think, point. It was, I think it was all the Arsenal players Wouldn't in that give corner. give the ball. I mean, yeah, just there about 20 yeah. seconds. So oh, come on, boys. But you, you laugh about it until you actually see the footage. And I'm thinking, if you're a player in that stadium playing for Arsenal, it doesn't matter what, if you're a multi-millionaire and your arrogant and your ego is as huge as the stadium itself, you would actually be quite ashamed and embarrassed by the fact that these, you know, 100 or 200 or whatever, maybe 1,000 uh, Arsenal fans chanting that so publicly. Uh, you know, I don't know how you'd be able to you know, play with any confidence after that. Particularly the, the away fans, particularly who mm. are considered to be the uh, the hardcore. The, they travel everywhere. They put their money where their mouth is, and they put in the time. And they finally had had enough. But I, I, they I, weren't I, the only ones. I've Carlos. actually been in in England on the last round of the EPL, where there was a nothing game at White Hart Lane. At Lane. It was Every Tottenham. game's a nothing game at White yeah, Hart Lane. Yeah, yeah. It was Tottenham versus Liverpool, and and there was nothing banking on it at all. <laughs> and at the end, you know, when the final whistle, I, I sort of hung around a bit, and I started walking out, and the guy I was with said, oh, no, no, they've got to give the, the fan awards now, and the players have got to come back out to accept the fan awards. It's okay. So the whole stadium was there, and I was wondering why everyone was so excited, because it was a pretty poor year for Tottenham. Anyway, as the players ran, uh, walked out, they were announcing their awards, and anyone who got an award got booed, because they <laughs> played so badly, and Dimi Berbatov apparently even refused to come out, because he was on his way to Man U, I think, at the time, and uh, the fans, they just turn on them. And look, they just see them as millionaires who are transient, they're not there forever. These Tottenham not fans were to born. Wear the shirt. Yeah, they were born into this club, and you players, you're just here for five seconds. So you better do your job, or else we're going to hate you. Dean's in Mornington. G'day, Dean. G'day. Uh, I just wanted to um, make a couple of comments on uh, the proposed second division, and uh, and the, I think a, a promotion or relegation is absolutely key to growing uh, the sport, and uh, I think that it's something they can do straight away by. Uh, using the existing club-level football as feeders, and they can have, a uh, at the end of a year, like a Cup Winners' Cup to decide who's uh, promoted. Uh, so without having a second division that's a national competition, because the, the logistics of that would be a, a nightmare and uh, very expensive, you've got, you've got the feeders already there uh, at Clubland, and, yeah, uh, I hear what you're saying, Dean, but what John Dillitzer was saying is about building uh, sort of like another level of professional model beneath that to give more footballers and more administrators and coaches an opportunity to coach at that higher level, like one step above the National Premier League teams. But uh, and the, but don't you think, Dean, and just on, on the wider question of promotion and relegation, we still lack the infrastructure for a club to you know, maybe win that Cup Winners' Cup competition and then be set up within nine months to be 
fully professionalised with the stadia and, and the facilities to be part of the A-League on a regular basis. Yeah, I, uh, I just think, you know, if you go back to the, uh, the examples from overseas, uh, they were all uh, born from, from club land. You know, uh, they didn't start off as professional uh, leagues. So, uh, so to try and to try and uh, you know inject another professional league is is uh, uh, is a, a flawed model. I think uh, when uh, you know the the A League clubs aren't aren't essentially clubs; they're A League uh, franchises, and uh, and it doesn't breed a lot of um, uh, a lot of passion from the supporter if uh, if that your club folds as uh, you know, North Queensland, and then turn up uh, two months later in uh, uh, Thargaminda. Yeah, yeah but I think uh, in theory it sounds great because we see it in all the big leagues around the world. But if you go down to the MPL clubs now and watch, you know, your fair share of MPL football as I do, uh, it's great football and I enjoy it. But they're nowhere near, nowhere near. They're, they're light years away from being anywhere near professional. Uh, that's in personnel and also in funding and in stadia. So uh, there's a long way to go. It sounds great and we all want it and it will happen one day, but we're nowhere near it. John's in Nary Warren. He's called us. G'day, John. Hello, John. Good afternoon, guys. Um, look, Carlos, I agree. I don't see a second division viable. Um, the, the, the thing that concerns me, like, I mean, I go to the NPL. I watch the Melbourne Knights. I'd love nothing more than to see my Knights back in at the top echelon of Australian football, considering what we have produced over the you know the past thirty years, but it's not sustainable. Um, what I, the, the thing that concerns me is that when we've got players going out of the NPL into these A League sides, then the clubs need to be compensated appropriately. Yes. I, mean, I look at a player. I look at a player like Elvis Kamsova at the moment. He is A League material with the with the professional coaching. He will be a gun in the in the A League, but you know the Knights need to be compensated accordingly for it. And there's many more players like that. But, but that's why, and that's why I think the NPL clubs are really uh, calling out to, to help and assistance in, in regards to that. Yeah, John. Just to clarify, I think I think we're right for a second division. I think if the if the budgets are five to ten million per club. Uh, I think we're right. I'm certainly not saying that there's that we can't do that. But promotion relegation, it's just even at, even at funding a club at five million or ten million uh, is still nowhere near. And also the personnel and the you know the IP that goes in that all all that's an experience of running a professional club. There's, we're just nowhere near the promotion and relegation part of it. Certainly, I think we should, as a as a something that's of urgency, is this idea of a second division. And, uh, and a professional second division. I think we can do it. Good on you, John. Thanks for your call. 94291116 is the number. Before we go, we have to talk about the incident in Dortmund last night. It was uh, rather unsettling for everyone concerned. So the game was going to be between Borussia Dortmund and AS Monaco, quarterfinal in the Champions League. And there was uh, an explosion near the bus for the uh, Dortmund players. Three explosions. Mm. Uh, one player injured, but uh, no one seriously. But uh, hugely unsettling for the game. This off the back of what happened in Paris in yeah. uh, December of 2015 at the Stade de France. Yeah. Um, I, I'm surprised it's not happening more, Francis, to tell you the truth. In this climate the, that we're in at the moment where, you know, soft targets are everywhere, uh, especially for terrorists, and no one's, admit, no one's actually said that this is a terrorist act. I no, think the German police have not said that yet. Yeah, no, not yet. But, I mean, that's what you sort of immediately think. I, I'm surprised that 
it doesn't happen more, and not necessarily at stadiums. But you know, you've seen the crowds overseas in particular. You know, walking down Seven Sisters Road to White Hart Lane, or getting off that uh, of that you know, the uh, the 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 tube station there with the all the people going to the football. I mean, geez, you, you can just drop a few bombs in that. Uh, not that I want to give ideas to anyone, but I mean, if you wanted to get soft targets, it's it's all there. So I'm not I'm surprised it's not happening more and. Really, really happy that no one's seriously being hurt, even though there is a suggestion that the Spanish footballer who's playing for Dortmund, I think Mark, uh, uh, forget his surname now, but uh, he is a guy who I think they said he wasn't serious, but I think it, it's turned into a little bit more serious because of the fact that uh, there, there was shrapnel and, um, and and glass you know, shards that uh, went flying around, and they, they thought initially it was his, his wrist, but it might be a bit more than that. Uh, and to the cr- enormous credit of the Dortmund fans, who are amongst my favourite football fans in the world, and I've been lucky enough to go to their, that stadium and see them play, uh, they started a campaign to find uh, accommodation for the Monaco fans. It was a hashtag bed for away fans and uh, looked after the visiting fans from France. And it was fantastic. The game's been uh, delayed for today. So yeah, we, yeah a, lot of let- a lot of photos on, uh, on social media with, you know, Monaco fans and Dortmund fans in someone's house having dinner together. I can imagine that in Russia with the Russian fans and the English fans. Maybe English fans being billeted out with the Russian fans, Francis. I can see that, can't you? Oh, Harmony yeah. amongst, yeah. amongst nations. Before we go, uh, A-League this weekend, final round of the competition. Victory at home against the Mariners Friday night live on your radio. Uh, inconsequential, really. Victory will Absolutely. finish second. Yeah. We'll have a week off after the finals. I mean, yeah. after the uh, the season, and uh, get set for after that. What about for Melbourne City? Their final game. Uh, the uh, they're off to Perth, so they need yeah. to win, don't they? Oh no, I think I think it's pretty set. I think the goal difference saves them a bit because da- Perth. Oh, look, let's have a quick look at it. So, yeah. thirty nine points uh, along with Brisbane Raw. Perth go around thirty six with minus one. But if City lose, I guess they drop to fourth, and they will yeah. they will lose the home final basically. If yeah. Brisbane pick up a point. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing, and I think the um, uh, uh, look. Who knows? I, I'm a bit worried about uh, Melbourne City at the moment because of uh, Roy Hodgson being in town and the fact that their senior coach needs a mentor or their coaching staff needs a uh, needs a mentor. I don't know what sort of message that's sending out, but they did very well on the weekend. And if they take that sort of form to Perth, given that uh, Perth are, are pretty good, uh, they're, they're established in in the finals. That uh, that might be an inconsequential inc- game also. So uh, look, it's hard to get excited about this this last round because there's not much hinging on it. But the finals are in two weeks' time, which I'm really looking forward to. Paul has sent a text through. He hopes nothing like that happens here in the A League, and uh, let's hope it doesn't either. And uh, you've won a prize, Paul. Make sure you get along to the A League Friday night Melbourne victory in the Central Coast Mariners at Amy Park at 7:50 p.m. We'll be on the radio from 7:30 p.m. calling that after the game between the Dogs and uh, the Kangaroos. And Jack also, who sent us an SMS off the SMS, uh, who wins out of victory in Central Coast on Good Friday? It's got to be victory, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. even though it's a training run, really. Good on you, Jack. You've won a uh, couple of tickets to that game as well. Thank you, Carlos. Thanks, mate.